Join me in this very first book of the Word of God, the book of Genesis. I've had a blast journeying through this with you so far. We're coming out of chapter 3. Last week we saw, you know, a little bit happen there. Uh, you know, only the downfall of humanity. That's all. This perfect couple that had it made, everything at their fingertips, and then through disobedience, there was this curse upon all of mankind that persists to this day, and they are removed from the garden. What we're going to see as we journey through this book, we're going to see a pattern emerge over and over, and it's a pattern of God governing mankind through a series of requirements, and the way that this works is in every age of human existence, there is a pattern. God issues a command do this or don't do this, and then that is followed inevitably by man disobeying that. He breaks that command. And after that, God then judges man, and he issues a new command, and that starts a brand new age. And so every age is going to be that God governs man according to something, through a command, and then man disobeys, and then God judges him and starts all over. And so there are a series of ages across human history, and those ages don't uh, represent new ways of salvation or anything like that. It's all about how God governs mankind. And the first age we call innocence because Adam and Eve, they were created in innocence. They were perfect. It was a very short age. Because they disobeyed God. And we know what the command of that age was. God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, they disobeyed God. They ate of that tree, and there was a judgment. We went through all of the, the, uh, the consequences for that disobedience last week. We saw that not just for Adam, for Eve, but all of humanity. And we walked through that. And so man is now under the curse of sin. He's not perfect anymore. And so God judged man in that way, and then a new age, uh, a new age commenced. And that we call the age of conscience. Why conscience? Because that's what they now had. The name of the tree is the knowledge of good and evil. Now man knows good and he knows evil as well. And so God's going to govern him according to that innate moral sense that he has. Now you know right and wrong, operate accordingly. And there will be a command, but we'll get to the command in just a bit here. But if you recall, there was a prophecy uttered by God to the serpent immediately in the aftermath of man's fall into sin. And he told that serpent that I will put enmity between your offspring and between the, uh, that offspring and the offspring of the woman. And this offspring would crush the head of the serpent. He says, so he's saying there is going to come through the line of man a redeemer. He's going to fix this whole thing and he's going to have victory over the serpent. <laughs> Amen. Yes. And this offspring would come through mankind. And so Adam, in faith, names his wife Eve. And that means life, as we said last week. And that's an act of faith. To call your wife life, that means you are trusting God's word, that life will come through the woman. And so that's where we pick it up here in chapter 4. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. He knew her. That doesn't mean they were friends. That doesn't mean they were buddies. That means there's an outcome here. And she conceived, it says, and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man 
with the help of the Lord. And so this is a big moment for them, for Adam and Eve, because of that prophecy that there would come offspring. So they are trusting God. They are believing in God that he's going to bring life. And here Eve conceives and she has a baby. And so that is the fulfillment of prophecy. But she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She calls her baby a man. That seems a little weird, doesn't it? Unless your baby's really big. Okay, but why is it significant that she refers to him as a man? It's because of that prophecy. God said of the offspring of the woman to the serpent, he says, he, he will crush your head. And so it is to be a male child according to the prophecy. And here we have a male child. And that's not lost on Eve. And so she is celebrating this fact. God has given her a male child. So as far as she knows, the prophecy could be fulfilled with the birth of this baby. This could be the one. This could be the deliverer that's going to set things right. And then they proceed and they have another child. And it goes on, it says in verse 2, And again she bore his brother Abel. And so here we've got uh, the first family underway. You've got Adam and Eve, and you've got these two boys right here. And we're going to focus on these two boys today. Now, many of you know this story. You remember this story. Maybe the last time you thought about this was when you were a kid in Sunday school. But I'm here to tell you, this is more than just some random story that belongs in a Christian children's book. This is a significant, powerful story that we're going to look at today. Because we're going to look at these brothers. And they are... In your notes, Cain and Abel, the prototypes for all people. And I want you to see that all unrighteous people are going to follow the example of Cain. And all righteous people are going to follow the example of Abel. They they both represent a different pathway, the way of Cain and the way of Abel. Now let's look at these brothers. They're different. How many of you are different from your siblings? How many of you got along perfectly with your brother or sister when you were growing up? Huh? You know, my mom, whenever my younger brother, Micah, I have two brothers, but Micah was the one that was three, three and a half years before me, behind me, rather. I was the oldest. We would get into squabbles and such. My mom, at times, had this T-shirt, and she would put us in that T-shirt, both of us, at the same time. Like, face-to-face, chest-to-chest, and she's like, you're going to learn to love each other in that shirt. Okay, you're going to stay in there until you love one another, all right? So, so did that work? Uh, maybe. I don't know. But there's going to be some squabbling between these two boys, at least on the part of one. There's going to be some rivalry here. But they're different. How many of you are you're, you're different from your sibling, right? Well, we see the difference in these boys. In verse 2, it goes on. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And so here's a contrast for you. In your notes, uh, Cain works with the ground. Now, you remember what happened to the ground after Adam's sin? God said, The ground is now cursed. Thorns and thistles will emerge. No more. You're just going to, with ease, reap sustenance from the ground. You're going to have to work for it by the, spread of, by the sweat of your brow. And so Cain works with that which is cursed. Abel, however, works over that. He rules over that which is cursed. He raises sheep upon the ground. He doesn't work with the ground. He rules over the ground. And then another contrast in your notes is that Cain has a secular job and Abel has a sacred job. One guy's a farmer, one guy's a shepherd. Abel's a shepherd. That's a sacred job. Why is being a shepherd a sacred job? I'm going to show you in just a moment here. But we're going to focus first here on the way of Cain. And by default, we're going to see the way of Abel. But let's look at this. There are several characteristics 
of this, this way of Cain. And if you know where this story is going, it's going to a dark place, a violent place, but that path starts long before that infamous act of violence. And the first characteristic of the way of Cain in your notes is frustration with God's standard. He's a frustrated man. In verse 3 it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And so what do you see about these boys? What are they doing? They're bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. They're bringing an offering to him. Why are they doing that? Well, do you recall what God told Adam and Eve? He said, if you eat of that tree, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Did they die? No, they did not die. Now, some of you are like, well, they died spiritually. That's not what God said. He didn't say you're going to die spiritually. He said you will surely die. But they didn't die. But you know what? Something did die. Something did die. Because what we read before they are ousted from Eden is that God covered them with skins. You know where those skins came from? God took an animal or animals and he shed their blood. He killed them. And he took those skins and he covered Adam and Eve. And in so doing, he institutes the oldest religious concept known to man, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And so this was demonstrated. Now keep in mind, he's just told the serpent that the offspring of the woman will crush your head, but you will strike his heel, which is to say there's a redeemer coming. He will defeat you, but it will come at a price. He will give up his life. And so the gospel is presented right there in Genesis 3. Right after God says that, he then turns, and as if to illustrate that point that there will be a redeemer that will lay down his life, he takes some animals, he sheds their blood, and he cloaks Adam and Eve. And what, this, what is communicated with all of this is that a sacrifice is required to cover sin. And that is the image there. And so when we see these boys come and bringing a sacrifice, it shows us that the sacrifice of Genesis 3 has now become an institution. This is something that all mankind is participating in. And I said a moment ago that Abel's job, being a shepherd, is a sacred job. What makes that a sacred job? Well, he's not raising sheep for sustenance. He's not raising sheep for the eating of meat. Man is not allowed to eat meat until after the flood. Noah would be the first guy to enjoy some lamb chops, all right? And so that's not why Abel raises sheep. He's raising sheep because sheep are for sacrifice unto the Lord. And so this is a priestly role. It's his duty to raise the sheep of sacrifice. And you also should know that these are not just two guys bringing a sacrifice. Some people, when they picture the story of Cain and Abel, maybe because we used to have books as kids and we'd read these stories and there would be illustrations and often there'd be a picture of a man and a woman and two little boys. You know, and it's, it's like a nuclear family from an old 1950s black and white sitcom. If you remember, like Wall, uh, Leave it to Beaver or something like that. Like this is just Adam and Eve and, you know, Wally and the Beef. If you're old enough to remember that. But that's not what Scripture presents here. There is a population on the earth at this point. Okay? Uh, Adam and Eve were created in perfection. They were full of virility. God told them to go forth, multiply, fill the earth. And they were able to do that uh, because of how they were made. And I assure you, they got right on that. And so they had, no doubt, a slew of children. Uh, We read in verse 14, after Cain commits his act and God sends him out as a vagabond, he's afraid that somebody's going to kill him. Well, who's going to kill him? There's other people out there. And so we have that indication. 
How long after the fall does this take place in chapter 4? Is this 20 years later? Is this, is this 30 years later? Well, no. Genesis 5 tells us that later Adam and Eve are going to have another son named Seth. And at that point, we learn how old Adam is at that point. And Scripture tells us he's 130 years old. And so the events of chapter 4 are at least 100 years after the events of chapter 3. So this is no family of four. There is a teeming population on the earth. In a century, you can have five generations pop up. So Adam and Eve can have children, those children can have children, and those children can have children, and so on and so forth. Lifespans were much longer in those days. And so how did the earth populate? Uh, We're told later, Cain has a wife. Where'd she come from? Who did Cain marry? Who did Abel marry? Well, obviously, these these are sisters. And some of you are like, ew, ew, ew. But this was how the earth got populated. How do you think? Was God taking ribs from every single dude? No. They were populating in the good old-fashioned way. And there was no prohibition against intermarriage in those days. There was no law mandating against that. Uh, The the gene pool was not corrupted. And so uh, it was not unsafe to do. You see God banning this under Moses when the law was uh, brought out. Uh, We know that the pharaohs practiced, practiced intermarriage. All right, in their family, we know that there were lines of deformity among the pharaohic lines, and so God bans that as a matter of safety and purity. But by chapter 4, this world has been going for a century, and you've got a lot of people there. And you got Cain, and Cain is the first of all of them. The first one born, that is. He is the, the possession. His, his name, Cain, means possession. Eve said, I've gotten a man. I have a possession from God. And he has no doubt a place of stature among all humanity as the firstborn of creation. And he works the ground like his father before him. And so he is the preeminent agriculturist on the earth. And people must look up to Cain, uh, this, this firstborn Uh, greatest farmer on the earth, producer of food. He gives us food. He teaches us how to produce food on our own. And so people look up to him. But at certain times of the year, they don't look to Cain. They look to his little bro. They look to Abel. Because certain times of the year are for sacrifice. And Abel is the one that they go to because he is the preeminent shepherd. He is the one that raises the sheep for sacrifice. And so they don't come to Cain for that. Everybody comes to Abel, including Cain. And you can bet Cain doesn't like that. And he's got to go year after year after year. Not this year. Nope. He says, I'm not doing it. And I want you to imagine at this time of sacrifice, you've got a crowd of people gathered and they're all bringing their sheep to the sacrifice. Maybe they're bringing it to Abel, the priest, all right? Maybe there's an altar there. Picture with me, one man walking through that crowd just as proud as he can be. What's he got, this cane? He's got broccoli. He's got zucchini. He's got the finest eggplant known to man. And he comes, and they're all gawking at him, and he's like, that's right. No, I'm not bringing what you guys got. No, sir, I don't, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need the shedding of blood. That's for you, waste of space. No, I'm bringing the work of my hands. I'm bringing what I do. God's really going to be impressed with me. 
What does it say in verse 4? And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. God rejects his sacrifice. Why does God reject Cain's sacrifice? Some say, well, he didn't bring his best. That's, have you heard that? Cain didn't bring his best. Abel brought his best. Cain didn't bring his best. I disagree. I think Cain brought his best. This is what Cain did. He was a farmer. He knew his work. He knew how to do this. I assure you, Cain brought the shiniest apples. Cain brought the finest produce. He probably had a whole cart of this stuff that he brought because he was out to impress God. But here's the problem in your notes. This sacrifice, it was brought in pride. It was brought in pride. Proverbs 21, 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Your intent matters to God. It's not the quality of your sacrifice. It's your motivation. Only what's done for Christ is going to last. When we stand in judgment, all the stuff we do for our own glorification, it's going to be burned away. And what will be revealed is only what, what will be done for Christ. Cain does not understand the, the importance of sacrifice. He doesn't understand the purpose of it. It's for the forgiveness of sin. And it was, there was no acknowledgement of his own inadequacy. In fact, he comes proudly with the work of his own hands. That's the focus here. And not only was it brought in pride, but in your notes, it fell short of God's standard. This was not the sacrifice God asked for. The method was all wrong. What does God require in sacrifice? Well, Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Purpose of sacrifice is forgiveness, but without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So we're in a new age. We're in the age of conscience, right? What is the command? Every age has a command. The command of this age is now that you've got the knowledge of good and evil, choose good. Do good. Now that you know what it is, but if you don't do good, Offer sacrifice. That is the command of the sage. Do good and offer sacrifice in penance. That's the command. Do what you know to be right in your heart, but when you fail, there's a covering through the shedding of blood. Well, there's no blood in Cain's offering. There's no penance in Cain's offering. This is not even a sacrifice. He can regrow all that stuff. And so the Lord says to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Why is your face falling? God is asking Cain to do some introspection here. Do some analysis. By the way, this is a very good psychological thing to do. Whenever you are down, whenever you are frustrated, you ever find yourself mad and you don't know why? You need to ask yourself, why am I angry? Why am I sullen? Why am I down? Why am I depressed? Now, you might come up with some surface answers for that. You know, it's because of so-and-so or this or that or whatever. Dig deeper. And often I think you'll get to your own self. You'll find out you're the reason. That's been my experience for sure. So he says, why? God knows this is important to do because God knows how sin begins. What does James say? James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's where we're heading in the case of Cain. Cain needs to check his desire. What is motivating your sacrifice, Cain? Are you doing this for the Lord? Are you doing this for you? You doing it so you gain the favor of men? You doing it so people will look at you? You doing it so you can affirm your own opinion of yourself? 
you got to check yourself before you wreck yourself, Cain. And so God gives him wise counsel. And he says in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, the word for accepted is se'et. Se'et, you know what that means? It means elevated, lifted up. He just said, why is your face fallen? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will your countenance not be lifted up? He says, you've lost your joy, Cain. You need to get your joy back. How do we maintain joy? We ensure that we have the right desire. See, your desire determines your joy. Your desire determines your joy. If you desire wealth, if you desire fame, if you desire sensuous things, you will not have joy. You might have temporary happiness, pleasure. You're not going to have lasting joy. You need the right desire. He says if you do well, that's what doing well means. It means you have the right desire. You do what's right because it's right. It doesn't mean, when he says do well, it doesn't mean be perfect. None of us can do that. None of us can do that, but we can have the right motivation. Do well. And if you do not do well, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I don't know where this contrary language comes from. We looked at that word for desire last week. It means to devour. Sin's uh, desire is to devour you. Right? That's what awaits you. It's going to eat you alive, Cain. It's lurking in the bushes outside your door. you got to know what's out there. This is a danger that you're flirting with. You remember the Oscars a few years ago, the whole Will Smith episode? You remember that? I haven't watched the Oscars in years, but I saw the clip, saw what happened. Here's Will Smith. He's a nominee for Best Actor. Got to be the biggest night of his life. He's projected to win. He, he must be filled with pride at this moment. On stage is the comedian Chris Rock. He makes a joke about Will Smith's wife, and Will loses it. Walks right up on stage, as I'm sure you've seen, slaps the fool out of Chris Rock. In front of God and everybody. National television. Biggest moment in his life. And he acts like a horse's rear end, and the place goes awkward silent. And there's profanity back and forth. It's just a bad, bad moment. And it's made more awkward later that evening when Will Smith wins Best Actor. And in what should have been a moment of celebration and adulation, he's got to come hat in hand and apologize for his actions. And what becomes apparent through his speech is that during the commercial break, a fellow nominee and my favorite actor, Denzel Washington, comes over to Will Smith and he tells him, be careful. At your highest moment, that's when the devil comes for you. Preach it, Denzel. <laughs> Reverend Denzel in the house. He, man, that is true. Satan will come for you. What, what do we heard? Pride comes before. That's right. And so Satan's coming for you, Cain. you got to watch it. 1 Peter 5 Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so you got to have the right motivation. you got to check yourself. And so this is beneficial. Now Cain knows. Now Cain's got this word from the Lord, some wise counsel. He can, he can just you know, get his attitude straight and we can move on with life, right? Hmm. No. What happens? Well, there's another characteristic of the way of Cain in your notes. It's hatred towards God's faithful. Hatred toward God's faithful. In verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother. He spoke to Abel. That's good. Communication is good, right? Uh, it says, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Yikes. 
And we're seeing entrapment. He probably lured him out there. And he's, he's, he's under the guise of a convo, and he kills his brother. Why? Jealousy? Resentment? He's thinking, stupid little brother. You think you're all that. You think you're so special? You're nothing. I used to be the special one. I was the firstborn. Everybody used to look to me. You think you're all that? Does this sound familiar? Is this, is this similar to Satan's outlook? Satan was once the greatest creation. He looks at Adam. All he wants to do is wreck God's new favorite little creation. And that spirit has carried over to Cain right here. And that whole James formula has been completed. He's been enticed by his own desire. Desire has given birth to sin. Sin is fully grown. And it has led to death. And you say, well, I, I might dabble with sinful desires, but I'm not going to kill somebody. Listen, here's the point. Satan wants to destroy you. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Satan will take you down. You have no idea what he's capable of. Do not underestimate your enemy. Do not. And these brothers are the beginning of the fulfillment of that enmity that God prophesied to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring, Satan, and the offspring of the woman. There will come a redeemer, and then there will be those who trust in that redeemer, and they will be the offspring of him. And so there will be an enmity between the unrighteous and the righteous. Is that a reality in our world today? Does the world just fawn all over the people of God? Do they think we're just the most wonderful thing ever? No, they don't. There's a natural antagonism. Where did that start? started right here. And we see it spoken of in 1 John 3. Uh, take a look at 1 John 3. By the way, this is the first time that those phrases, children of God and children of the devil, are used back to back. It says, by this it is evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, it says, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so these boys are the prototypes for all humanity, righteous and unrighteous. They will follow the way of Cain or the way of Abel. Now look at Jude, Jude 11. This book talks about uh, the response of ungodly man all throughout history in the church age. It says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and Korah's rebellion. Who are Balaam and Korah? A couple guys we read about in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a false prophet, knew the truth, used his position for filthy gain. Korah was a, a guy that opposed Moses. He led a revolt and he and all his co-conspirators were consumed by fire. And what they had in common is they, they hated authority. They didn't want to be under authority. And that is the way of Cain. Cain blazed the trail for all people who opposed God. And that's what the scripture says about him, even in the New Testament. What about Abel? Does the Bible talk about Abel other than Genesis 4? We don't see a lot about him in Genesis 4. We know that he, he gave a worthy sacrifice and he was murdered. Not a lot of real estate there. But here's what Hebrews says. He is listed in that great chapter, chapter 11, 
the faithfulness of, of God demonstrated. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel still speaks. Today, when does Abel speak? Whenever the gospel is given. Whenever fallen man is appealed to, to, to look at himself, at his own sinful condition, and acknowledge his inadequacy and his fallenness, and is presented with this righteous option, the only acceptable sacrifice to God is through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Whenever a fallen person recognizes his fallenness and trusts in the one worthy sacrifice, that is Abel's speaking. The example of Abel's way, we are called to walk that way, not the way of Cain. Jesus addressed the Pharisees in Luke 11. He, he's talking to them. They were puffed up. They didn't, they didn't want to rely on anything other than their own works for the righteousness of God. And, and Jesus is speaking about how they've always attacked the faithful of God. And he says in Luke 11, uh, 49, uh, Therefore the wisdom of God said, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world... There were prophets at the foundation of the world in its earliest days, according to Christ, yes. And who, who is that prophet from the foundation of the world? He tells us in verse 51, from the blood of Abel. Christ identifies Abel as the first prophet, the one who still speaks today. And he was murdered by the children of the devil in the form of Cain, Unity with the world is not going to happen. We try to unify with the world. We try to, we try to say the things that are going to endear us to the world. Not going to happen. You don't have to be vitriolic about the world. You don't have to attack them and curse them and all that stuff. All you got to do is, is just stand for truth. And they will be offended. They will oppose you. It says so in Scripture. And so this is an important story because it confirms what was prophesied in the previous chapter. And so we got to remember that people hate Christ, and they hate those who are of Christ. And it began with Cain. And then we see another characteristic of the way of Cain in your notes. We see insolence at God's rebuke. Cain's going to be confronted. It says in verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You note the impudence in this man? You see a difference? Remember how Adam responded? God calls to Adam, Adam, where are you? That rhetorical question, he knew where he was. Present yourself, son. He comes forward. What was Adam's response in that confrontation? He's shifting blame. It's the woman that you gave me. You know, Cain is not shifting blame. He's just a bratty jerk. He's just insolent. He's like, I don't know. What am I, my brother's? Keeper, you notice the dig on Abel, by the way? What is Abel? He's a keeper of sheep. He's saying, what am I, my brother's shepherd? Oh, what, does the shepherd need a shepherd? You see this? He's, he's like, he's, he's questioning God's authority to even ask him this question. What are you asking me for? What right do you have to ask me this question? The world still does this. Whenever God's people take a stand morally on some issue, we say, this is right, this is wrong. What does the world say? Well, who are you to say? Who are you to tell me what a man is? 
what a woman is, what a family is, what marriage is, what faith is. Truth makes an enemy of the world just naturally. And the Lord said in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so I just want to take a moment here and look at the consequences for Cain. The first thing in your notes is that God declares Cain's guilt. He's unequivocal. He identifies Cain as the killer. Don't deny it, Cain. You did it. You did it. That line about his brother's blood crying from the ground, I believe that's the basis for capital punishment. Capital punishment in Scripture is always justified by the dignity of man. Your brother's blood is crying out for justice. And this is the, the, the first uh, inception of that. Uh, it's going to be instituted later in Genesis 9. Is God going to kill Cain right here? We'll see. But God, he points to Cain as the one responsible. Notice God doesn't blame the implement. He blames the perpetrator. There's no call for rock control or club control, all right? You're the problem, Cain. And in verse 11, it says, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. And so not only is he declaring Cain's guilt, but here God, in your notes, dismisses Cain's source of identity. It's that thing that Cain prides himself in. This is the work of my hands. Look at what I have done. Bask in my presence because of my handiwork. And so God takes what he does that has inflated his ego, and he says, I'm taking that from you. Because you know what? You're not the one who causes all things to grow. I make the rain fall. You're just a tool. You're just an instrument. And since you don't acknowledge that I am the source of life, I'm going to take this from you, Cain. Our identity cannot be found in what we do. You are not what you do. You are who God says you are. That's right. That's right. I mean, who's Michael Jordan? Some say he's the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Now, I think he may be the greatest basketball player who ever lived, okay? But I notice he doesn't play a lot of basketball these days. Has Michael Jordan ceased to exist? No. Our identity is not found in what we do. Because that's got a lifespan. We are who he says we are. And so he, then he says to Cain, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so here in your notes, God now deprives Cain of fellowship and displays him as a testimony to all. This is more than just alienation from other people. What we have here is a spiritual judgment that has taken place. Cain deserves death. God's not going to kill him. You know why? Because he wants to make him a living testimony. He wants to make him an example for all people. You're going to roam, and when people look at you, they will see what, what it looks like to reject the standard of God. They're going to they're get an example. They're going to see a testimony. There will be no more sacrifice for Cain. He will not sacrifice. That's what happens when you make yourself the standard. Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Did Cain know the truth? He did. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is somber, folks, but what happened to Cain still happens today. 
It happens today. This verse doesn't mean that we lose salvation. Some people interpret it that way. That's not what it means. What this means is that there are those who are aware of the truth, and they have rejected that truth, and they reject, 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 and apparently they get to a point where there is a line known but to God. We don't see it, but he sees it, and when that line is crossed, he says, you're done. You're done. There's no more sacrifice for you, and I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you want. That's what Romans 1 says. It says of the people that knew God but did not acknowledge him, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God what? Killed them? No, he gave them up. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He gives them up. God is giving Cain up right here. And though Cain has chosen this for himself, he still finds it unfair. Look at this, verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be like a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. You see what his fear is? He's still afraid of death. But in your notes, he's complaining over God's justice. This is a mark of the way of Cain. And it's so typical. You hear this whining about the justice of God. You hear this today. I talk to people and they're like, well, that's not fair what you're saying about, about judgment and heaven and hell. God is love. Why would God judge people? God wouldn't judge people. He's a loving God. A loving God. How could a loving God send people to hell? You heard that question before? You know what question I've never heard? Other than how could a loving God send people to hell? I've never heard how can a just God allow sinners into heaven? That's the real head scratcher for me. I got to tell you. Why would he do it? Why would he make a way for us? We are in the situation we're in because of us. He's the Holy One. He's done nothing wrong. He's the one who has laid down the life of, of his son, Jesus Christ, for us. Boggles the mind. Cain expects death, not from God, but from other people. He says, someone's going to kill me. You're sending me out, they're going to kill me. He probably thinks that because Abel's got a big family. They populate the whole world. So somebody's going to harm him. But then the Lord says, verse 15, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. What is this mark? No idea. Is this the world's first tattoo? Is, he, is that the curse? A really bad tattoo? Is Cain just going to wander the earth? You know, no regrets right there. I think more likely there's something communicated by this mark in whatever form it is on him that whoever sees him that might want to hurt him says, hey, you touch this man, you're going to have to deal with God. Sevenfold. Seven is the number of completion. That's God's number. And so God is establishing vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is not for humanity. I give uh, government, as we shall see in the next few chapters, we're, we're, he's going to empower human authorities to enact vengeance on his behalf, but it belongs with him. But now we're going to see as we close, this, this is really the final characteristic in the way of Cain, in your notes. It's stubbornness in his legacy. In verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. It's willful. He, he went away. He's, he's to be a fugitive. See if he sounds like a fugitive. 
It says, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod means wandering. That's what the name Nod means. But he, does he wander? Is he wandering? No, he settled. He settled. That doesn't sound like a fugitive. And he lays down roots in this place. And it says in verse 17, he knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. He's, he's starting a family. He's not a fugitive. It's like God says, wander. He says, no. No. And he persists in his rebellion. He settles. He puts down roots. He starts a family. It says when he built a city, a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son Enoch. Guy's building cities here. And it says of Enoch, now he's got descendants, and they're procreating. Uh, to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and this guy, Lamech. This descendant of Cain, like his great-great-great-granddaddy, what a piece of work this guy is. The line of Cain culminates with him. Here's what he does here in verse 19. It says, Lamech took two wives... First recorded case of polygamy in your Bible. He may not have been the first, but, and he won't be the last. But it's the first time we see it here. Now, there's no law against it at this time, polygamy. We don't see any law yet. But it's very clear what God's design for marriage is. It's to be one man, one woman. That is clear from the beginning. And so this, this action is in keeping with the legacy of Cain a guy who's his own standard. And let me tell you about these wives. It says the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Okay? Uh, you know what these names mean? Adah means beautiful trinket. Today he might call her bling. Bling. This other chick, her name is Zillah, means sweet-voiced or sultry voice. He might call her, you know, sugar lips. So you got bling and sugar lips, you know, just surely some fine girls to bring home to mom. And Adah bore, in verse 20, uh, a guy named Jabal. He was the father of those, it says, who dwell in tents and have livestock. Why is he raising livestock? They're not allowed to eat meat yet. So he's in rebellion. Uh, verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And so the, the children of Cain are inventing musical instruments. They're... they're, they're uh, participating in artistic expression. They're writing songs. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. But you'll notice God is not mentioned here. This is all for their own glorification. This is all for their own entertainment. There's no focus on the Lord. This isn't worship music. And in verse 22, Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. So here God has cursed Cain from the ground. What are they making? Tools. The ground is cursed, so what are we going to do? We're going to overcome that curse with tools. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to elevate technologically so that we can maintain our lifestyle. And the fact that they're made out of bronze and iron means they figured out how to mine for ore. So this is a very advanced society that is emerging from Cain. And they undoubtedly are very, very proud of their accomplishments. But again, God is nowhere to be found. They don't give glory to God for any of this. And then we hear from this Lamech. He's written a little song about himself. And in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. Yo, bling, sugar lips, listen up. 
I have killed a man. Mama, just killed a man, you know. For wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You hear this vile braggart? He's boasting. This kind of reminds me of some of the self-focused lyrics of today's music. I think of gangster rap or something like that. That's what this reminds me of. He's bragging about all the women he's got. He's bragging about this young buck that was in his prime that he's put down. He's saying, you best not mess with me. I'm going I'm to have vengeance on you 77-fold. He's full of himself here. He's a big deal in his own eyes. Notice the 77-fold business. I was talking with Pastor Bobby, our, our XP. He'd read this, and he, what, observed, what he observed is how this contrasts with Christ. Here, Lamech seeks vengeance that's 77-fold. Yet in the New Testament, Peter comes to Jesus. He says, how many times should I forgive my enemy? Seven times? Christ says, no, 70 times seven. So far from the way of Cain. Meanwhile, Adam and Eve are watching this whole atrocity go down. They've had to watch all of this happen. Their firstborn is now a fugitive from God. Their secondborn has been murdered by their firstborn. They still have the promise of God that their offspring will bring redemption. And it says in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And it must, it must inflict pain on her to even utter their names. And even the name of God she has trouble with. The word that she uses is Elohim. That is the generic name of God. She's not referring to him as, as Yahweh, his personal name. So she must have felt very far from God during her time of loss. And yet, God is not far from her. And he brings hope. And he allows her to have a new son named Seth, and Seth grows. And in verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. So here's a new beginning, a new child, a new hope. And look what happens. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the word for Lord is not Elohim. It's the personal holy name of God, Yahweh. This is a people known for worshiping the Lord. God is permitting here in the wake of scandal, in the wake of murder, in the wake of idolatry and, and brazen rebellion, he allows a spiritual revival. The first revival in human history is happening right here. And Seth's line will honor the Lord. Now, they will not be known for their great accomplishments. They will not be known for agriculture. They will not be known for technology. They will not be known for artistic expression. What are they going to be known for? For calling upon the name of the Lord. They will be a people known for worship. And here in your notes, as we close, the lesson of Abel is this. God's standard never changes. His standard doesn't change. And we must have faith in his provided means to meet that standard. It's the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And there is one sacrifice and only one that is acceptable. But here's the lesson of Cain in your notes. It's that one's own works... However great, by human measurement, they can never, never meet God's standard. What are you known for? 
Are you known for your works? Are you known for your talent? Are you known for your ability? Or are you known for calling upon the name of the Lord? Folks, we must be a people that worships, that lifts up the name of Jesus Christ, the one acceptable sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon everybody here today. May we trust in the one who is worthy and not in ourselves. I ask your blessing upon these folks here today. May they always have in their heart and in their mind an awareness of their own state and a gratitude for the one who laid down his life for us that we might know life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.